Welcome listeners to the 15th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt. With me today, as always, are co-hosts and powerful wizards, Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. Amazing welcomes to you, dear listeners. Hello, listeners. Hello. Welcome to another week of excitement and old people talking about an old game. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Decked app. In today's episode, we will, as always talk about the paper legacy we've played in the past week. After that, we will dive into the hottest of topics currently in Magic the Gathering, the announced melding of Magic and a couple of other known and very celebrated universa, namely Fortnite, Warhammer 40k and Street Fighter. We will discuss if we think this is good or bad for Magic in general, as well as the thing the three of us care about more specifically, paper legacy. Lastly, we will look at what island to play in Mono Blue Ursa Karn Echo style decks. However, first things first. Before we unleash the clickbaits of the week, Robin, how was your Magic Paper Week? I had a good Magic Paper Week. I've been uh, playing a little bit of Lands and a little bit of my Bant Midrange, which I have named Black Bant because there's the black small splash. And uh, I've been playing, um, testing a little bit against Esper Vile. And uh, first I we played Lands against Esper Vile. And uh, now being back on the full set of Valakut Explorations feels really good here because you sort of can exhaust there their answers and ca- and, uh, and counter magic, like after countering both Loam and uh, Ordinary ex- uh, ex- Expedition? Exploration. I could stick the Valakut Exploration, which drew me a few cards, and like by then it's done its work. And he had a, a window where he could, like, uh, where he had a Caracas and Benzer, uh, which could bounce my mace so that he could ship through a little bit of damage. Uh, but then I could find Wasteland and could remove his Caracas. And uh, the other game just came down to a Waste Loop, so that was pretty one-sided for Lance. Then I went over to uh, the Epic Storm. <laughs> After your request, Christopher, uh, I-, I am not a very oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm not a very experienced pilot in the Epic Storm, and especially not now since the deck has changed quite a lot since Modern Horizons 2. And uh, I, I won one game after baiting the, the force with the defense grid and just going off with Ad Nauseam. But game two and game three, when I bought it in, all the new cards, Eve uh, and so forth, I, I couldn't really cross the finish line there. And uh, Espervile can be a quite a hateful deck you know, if you are on a storm combo. And then I was on my black midrange, uh, black band midrange deck, and uh, he was on an 80 card Esper Vial with a Yorion sort of value engine for the late game. But uh, my experience from playing against also Death and Taxes with Yorion in the late game is that Bant can hold up with that sort of card advantage just by overlooping with Caracas or just playing all of your value spells in the deck. And that was sort of what happened, that when he finally was onto a Yorion bounce plan, I had already full grip and could just sort Yorion in response to the Krakas. And then a little bit uh, more testing, I played lands against Death and Taxes, and I lost one game to said Yorion, <laughs> and uh, a waste timely on my Mace of If. Otherwise, it felt quite good to have two Maces, uh, two Blast Zones Tabernacle and a P5 package. And also the Pithing Needle in the main deck, which is my only sort of dedicated uh, Ursa Saga target for now. 
and that serves really well in that matchup, even though it didn't come up naming a vial. But I, th I think that matchup feels quite good. Uh, the problem is, of course, uh, flyers, which is hard to deal with with zombies and uh, and contracts. And then we played a little bit of uh, Bant versus Reanimator, and against Reanimator, generally game one is is a lost game. Uh, but game two, I feel like the game can put up a fight. I boarded in quite a, a lot of cards, so the six force of wills that is in the main deck got paired with two wills of summers, one fluster storm, two hull breachers that came in from the board. And then I already had the Leovold, sort of a Halbridge number three, and two Endurances, which can be both played and, and sort of pitched to great value in that matchup. But it's all, always scary to be on the, on, the, on the draw in that matchup. If there's a, if there's a Chancellor trigger, uh, there's always a little bit scary. Yeah, my, my uh, like, uh, reanimator feeling is no matter the deck I'm playing, I always feel a bit intimidated playing it. Uh, if I know that it's my opponent is on it, it rarely makes me, you know, uh, uh, I, I rarely have, you know, the sensation that I'm safe, no matter what deck I'm playing, uh, whether it be a blue-white control deck or Delver, uh, even if people are like, yeah, but this is a good matchup, it's one of those decks that just instills fear in you. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I feel like the matchup has a little bit been a little bit more like manageable when you have these kind of late game cards that are not uh, only for this matchup like Rest in Peace uh, that you played in the back in the days, but now that you have cards like Hullbreacher which sort of shut off the the most frightening thing which is Grizzlebrand drawing 14 cards. I feel like the matchup has become a little bit better with that kind of things to wait into so that you can keep a hand with a lot of interaction and then draw into a, sort of a haymaker that will close the game. Fantastic stuff as always. Christopher, what did you get up to last week? I had some other plans this uh, this Wednesday. And uh, yeah, I, I, I was offered and offered uh, in return to play some extra games. But I was once again hit by the uh, <laughs> post-vaccine post, uh, uh, side effects. Like all of my friends, no one has gotten these, but yeah, it, it's it's rough. Uh, so I was aiming on playing more this first day, which is the day after our league, uh, our little Discord uh, playoff. But uh, yeah, my, I wasn't feeling it. But I did play one best of three. I played the, I would say, pretty stock uh, Doomsday list uh, with two personal tutors and, you know, the sideboard plan of Sheldock Isle, Kavno Souls, and... The, the opponent that I played against was uh, the same uh, Esper uh, Yorion player that Robin faced. And I think that Esper has a lot of game against Doomsday. They have one of the most scary cards imaginable, which is Meddling Mage, which can just shut off, depending on when it lands, shut off Doomsday or just shut off your Fasus Oracle. So like making a pile and passing the turn is not really a line that you can reliably go for here and that's very scary but yeah it's it's one of the most brutal matchups that i can that i that i have played but due to them playing yorian it felt like it helped me a bit because with like we talked about with death and taxes you know you do add more four ofs in certain hate bears you pack 
a, a punch that hits the same targets that the normal deck usually does, and it's not trying to dilute too much. Uh, but there are aren't really a scarier card in the Esper Vile Mirror, uh, in the Esper Vile matchup than Meddling Mage, and there's not really an effect like that that is as scary. So them being on Yurian is definitely something that I'm excited to see. But yeah, for sure, like it, it was it was kind of funny. I haven't I haven't really played the Sheldock Isle Emrakul that much. Even like it's an it's an old tech, and I haven't really played it all that much. But I got to bring it in game two. I won game one and game two. And in game two, I got to bring it in, and you know, do the Doomsday, do the Sheldock, put Emrakul on there. And then just do the mega deterministic kill, which is you cast your Emrakul, you cycle a land with the Edge of Autumn or something like that. You take your extra turn, you attack them, and then you <laughs> play Cavern and Fasas Oracle if they didn't die on the swing already. So it's it's just like super deterministic and <laughs> very, very fun magic. So yeah, that was my week pretty much. I only played one best of three. Wow, that sounds great. What about you, Victor? What did you play? Yeah, I also had a week of less than uh, I perhaps wanted to uh, Paper Legacy. I also missed the Wednesday. I've been dabbling mostly in Dungeons and Dragons, actually, uh, for the past couple of days. But I did uh, play against Robin in the matches he mentioned earlier with my Jorion Taxes. I lost 1-2 to Lance and the Black Red Reanimator. I lost 1-2 to Bant. The Taxis matchup, as Robin said, the first game, uh, I had pretty much excellent answers to to your game plan, Robin, with uh, exiling the Valakut exploration with the Yorion, and then basically steamrolling from there with a 4-5 flyer in the air that this deck has great difficulty dealing with uh, if you don't have the Mesa Vith. And games 2 and 3, sort of the opposite. Um, I think... If we sort of even it out, or I think if we um, round up one of the games I lost to Tabernacle of Pendle Vale, and the other game I lost to a couple of constructs coming pretty hard. Both those uh, strategies are difficult, I think, to to counter with Death and Taxes, regardless if you play 60 or 80 cards. Because Tabernacle is a Tabernacle, it can really tax you back, which is, uh, you know, completely unfair but there you go and um, four four five five constructs that keep hammering in and also you can't attack into them and they're difficult to block so uh, that one one and two but i think comparing to what i discussed last week i have a better feel for how i should play the deck and how i should always go for the reactive angle depending on what the lands player is trying to do since i have access to virtually the entire toolbox of DNT since I play 80 cards. It can be very adaptable. It's just that sometimes fighting through a naturally drawn tabernacle is just really difficult. And you can't really play around that too much. It's just gonna that's gonna happen. The Black Red Reanimator, on the other hand, felt as both of you said, the first game this deck can be really, really good. And I had one of those sort of I mulligan to six turn two inevitability uh, with the uh, Sean of the Annex backup and opponent just scoops uh, I think I didn't even get to <laughs> put my goose in that's how it was I had enough thank you thank you let's go on game two was horrible 
because I'm like, okay, this is a good six. Uh, I'm going to go turn one Thoughtseize, and then I'm going to go for a... a uh, oh, actually, I went turn one... Um, in game two, I went turn one Faithless Looting and planning to go into turn two Thoughtseize. And turn two Thoughtseize resolves, but in response, uh, there is Veil of Summer. I had almost forgotten how that felt because people aren't really playing that many Veil of Summers these days because people stop playing Discard because of Veil of Summer. And it's awful. It's like if there was one card I could complain about endlessly from the sort of World of Spark and onwards power creep for Legacy paper, this this would be it. Because Veil of Summer is so unfair. It's, it's brutally punishing, horrible in all senses of the way. Uh, for green it's just no i would also say that uh, discard has become even more liable as a source of uh, of interaction in a combo deck since the printing of ragavan and i've been on that receiving end of that (laughs) playing a combo deck getting ragavan and they find my discard and like the game is over from there at least you know how i feel now Yeah, there are, there are for sure some really bad feels. Uh, I mean, I mean, I usually sleeve up some number of Thoughtseizes, or or I used to uh, when I was playing Aluren or Food Chain, but uh, the Veil is is just a nicer option because it kind of does in a lot of decks what you want the Thoughtseize to do is allow you to combo off or prohibit the opponent from comboing off or making sure that your Haymaker sticks and it's like good against counter magic discard spells and uh, it can kind of act like uh, i mean ts uses uh, like has used it a lot like pretty much all green decks i think maybe not elves that much i just think the card is one of the reasons why black is not really uh, a lot of people say that black is probably the worst color in legacy right now and I kind of think that it's a bit of Vale's fault. Uh, because this card could be very powerful in this kind of meta. But then again, we have the Ragavan issue as well, and the Uro issue. But overall, I think that Vale is a part of the, a part of the equation. Most and foremost, like Ragavan, uh, I've seen it in paper now for the first time, like uh, uh, over, over this weekend and watching some streams. And I think... I've been exposed to some of the most boring play patterns I've ever seen in paper. Get that card out of here. That's my only hot take. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool to see you playing Silence off the board in Reanimator because that is a card that does something completely different than what Discard does and and completely plays around the kind of cards that I would like to board in against Reanimator, such as Fluster Storm or, or Surgical Extraction, for instance. Yeah, yeah, no, I really liked the, the introduction. Of course, I did not invent this myself. I took this from the internet, but I like uh, how it's going. Actually, I used to play... Uh, when the card was released first, I played Veil of Summer in the sideboard of Black Red Reanimator. It didn't sort of perform as well as other cards would, but I at least tried it. Uh, but I mean, having done just this one match against uh, your Black Bantech makes me understand why people currently are not putting up so many results with a lot of combo decks, actually. Because as you said, a lot of the cards that you have in your deck are good cards in and of themselves not only hate cards 
against specific combo strategies. Like Hullbreacher, Leovol, these cards have other uses as well, which I think is why the meta is perhaps more punishing than usual towards certain types of combo decks, because there's a higher likeliness that your opponents will play these cards that are bad for you, uh, and not only to beat you, but uh, to advance other strategies as well. So I think I'm going to put Black Red Reanimator back in the box for a little while and try the other decks I'm playing. Lastly, on this week's uh, paper play, noteworthy and great, uh, the Leaving a Legacy Open in Massachusetts gathered 96 players and the four-season tournament in Bologna a whooping 190 players. So that's good news. Uh, I encourage all of you to look out for deck lists and analysis of these tournaments in other excellent podcasts in your pod machines because we will go on to discuss a very different topic now. It is time to approach a topic that isn't something we on this podcast usually discuss, the development and current health of Magic the Gathering. The discussion is of course sparked by the Magic Showcase 2021, where the following coming products, among many others, were announced. Under the Universes Beyond umbrella, where we have previously seen a Walking Dead secret lair, we can now look forward to Warhammer 40k Commander decks, a modern legal Lord of the Rings set, Secret Lair Fortnite, Secret Lair Street Fighter. So, first of all, for transparency, let's look at our experience in these universa. Who on this podcast has read and or watched The Walking Dead? Comic by Robert Kirkman, 2003 to 2019. TV series by Frank Darabont from 2010 and ongoing. I have no experience with this uh, TV series or book. Uh, I think I've read some chapters but uh, more importantly i've watched i think five seasons before i got extremely exhausted by the deterioration of the show (laughs) rick did not pump me is what i can say there were not many humans left there was no plus two plus two to the team there for me i have neither watched the tv series or read the comic i remain woefully uninterested in zombies uh, outside uh, of Innistrad, which we'll get to later. Okay, so who has played and or painted Warhammer 40k, which is a miniature war game from 1987, currently in its ninth edition from 2020, uh, produced by Games Workshop? I have no experience. Uh, I have played one game. A friend tried to get me to play it, and it was awful because it was too many, like too much to take in and he was terrible at teaching i have done nothing in warhammer 40k i have however in my younger days painted and played warhammer fantasy okay who has read and or watched the lord of the rings a book trilogy by J.R.R. tolkien from 1954 to 1955 and film trilogy by peter jackson 2001 to 2003 I have both read and watched uh, several times. 
I actually got the one of the oldest uh, Lord of the Rings editions from my grandma when I was eight. I read that quite a bit, maybe four or five times, and uh, I've watched the movie uh, enough to be able to quote probably everything in the whole movie. I have also read Lord of the Rings multiple times and watched the trilogy extended editions multiple times. It's my go-to films if I'm down with influenza at home. Who has played Fortnite, a computer game from Epic Games 2017, uh, then in early access? Now I think the game is actually out. I've not played it. Not me. Not me. I've watched one stream on Fortnite. Look at us boomers. Proud I am. Look at us boomers. Who has played Street Fighter, an arcade game by Capcom 1987? Perhaps one should count the start here from the 1992 Super Nintendo Entertainment System port of the arcade game Street Fighter 2 The World Warrior by Capcom in 1991 I played it in my childhood so small story time I'm I in my younger days I was really into the fighting game community um, I've been a commentator on Super Smash Bros Melee like the the Euro champs and I've done a lot of stuff like that at uh, tournaments, and I was a bad competitor, like uh, not super skilled, but went to a lot of events uh, to have a good good time. And I also did play a bit of Street Fighter, and like with Smash, I was not really good at it. Uh, I'm definitely better uh, playing Smash, but when it comes to Street Fighter, I have played it a bit. Um, there are some banger tunes in there, like Guile's theme is just too good of a meme song not to know of. Uh, if if our listeners need some quick entertainment, search Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Guile's theme. And there's a famous snooker scene where uh, his uncle, Phil, uh, completely robs a hustler and they put Guile's theme on it and it's just perfect. So yeah, I have, I have some relationship with this. This is the one scene from Fresh Prince in Bel-Air that I clearly remember when his butler Joffrey is said to break out Lucille which is the name of his father's or his uncle's um, um, like whatever the pool stick is <laughs> it has it has yeah, a pool name stick, probably exactly. for all those <laughs> it probably has a great name I have uh, played Street Fighter 2 on my Super Nintendo Entertainment System quite a bit but I enjoyed more in that um, age I enjoyed more the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fighting game, uh, which I played a lot with my friends. That was awesome. Okay, the point of this exercise is, of course, that to see and illustrate that we have first-hand experiences with some, but not all, of these universa. And from the reactions I have seen in the Magic community, some, but not all of us, tend to have different views on Magic the Gathering versions of these universa, depending on one's familiarity with them. And I think that's something to keep in mind. And that insight got me thinking about the fact that virtually no iteration of any form of cultural expression in which games are included can exist in a cultural vacuum. What I mean by that is basically that any given film, artwork, book, poem, game, etc. will always include references, intentional or not, to cultural context in which this cultural expression has been created. Magic the Gathering is of course no exception. I will now illustrate this by giving examples from this in the first Magic the Gathering set as well as the first expansion of the game. 
And hold on to your hats, please, because even though I am listing only a small number of examples here, there are quite a few. So stick with me, okay? The first Magic set was Alpha, or Limited Edition Alpha, as it was technically called, published in 1993. Before I give examples of cards, I just want to point out that this set had a couple of this had a couple this set had a couple of creature types that I think were not invented by Richard Garfield, such as Angel, Basilisk, Demon, Jinn, Elf, Knight, Vampire, Wizard, Orc, Minotaur and artifact creature. And some say, well, artifact creatures, what is that? And then I would just sort of encourage you to read up on medieval automatons and uh, the like, and you will find for yourself that indeed artifact creatures were not invented by Richard Garfield in any shape or form. Some card examples of how this cultural interplay is manifested in Magnet Gathering. The card Crusade, for example, now banned for reasons that we're not going to discuss currently right now, but of course this is uh, something related to 12th century European religious warfare. You have the Rack, which is a, uh, I think, 5th century BC Greek torture device. You have the Ankh of Mishra, and the Ankh, of course, is an ancient Egyptian hieroglyph. It's the word for life, first discovered in 30th or 29th century BC. Armageddon and Wrath of God are obvious biblical references, and uh, the Bible is a a popular book among religious people in the country in which magic has originated. Less apparent, perhaps, is Nevenirel's Disc, a card that I played a lot in my Necro days. It references a book by Larry Niven, uh, not long before the end, in 1969, where there is this disc that does specifically, more or less, what Nevenirel's Disc does in Magic the Gathering. Lord of the Pit, an old favorite of many people who played Magic in the younger days, uh, fourth edition earlier. Oh, Lord of the Pit, so cool. This is, of course, from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, 1954. This is the Balrog. And then you have Wheel of Fortune, which is a mystical symbol inspired by the Greek goddess Fortuna. It was popularized in 15th century culture in Europe, but perhaps the most, uh, and it's perhaps the most remembered as a major arcana tarot card. But the first source is from Roman 5th to 6th century philosopher Boethius. Also, Wheel of Fortune is a 1970s US television program. So, that's limited edition alpha. Reactions, please. Oh, man. Okay, I just want to begin with, I'm so mad and happy about Nevenirel's disc that it's actually Larry Niven backwards. I didn't even see that, but yes, there you go. The name of the mirror's disc is the author's name backwards. That's how silly this is. <laughs> I just thought, I, I saw so many similar letters, and the double R in a Y word was just that was the the <laughs> pinch that I needed to like. Oh shit, it's backwards. But yeah, I think it's I think it's very these creatures, you know, uh, the Minotaur from perhaps. Uh, I don't know what what is that the, the Odyssey or something like that. It's uh, uh, there's a lot of references that kind of seem seem uh, natural to have. Like it's it's kind of hard to innovate like a new kind of nightmarish creature without going to folklore, and uh, that's what I think. Uh, that's that's why I personally think that a lot of sets that has a strong folklorish theme usually has better flavor because some of it is already given to us by our just 
cultural heritage or our uh, like um, amusement of hearing all all sorts of you know about the the Egyptian gods, Greek gods, and you know Norse uh, like folklore. I think uh, those sets resonate a lot more because we have seen it and we're more warm to it. All right, I'm going to move on to the first expansion of Magic Gathering, which is, of course, Arabian Nights, also released in 1993. Uh, to begin with, Arabian Nights is a whole universe that the makers of Magic Gathering just copies onto their cards. Like, this is a completely existing mythos. So, you know, first off, this is essentially that. And then some card examples. You have Ali from Cairo, uh, which was famously banned for a while. Uh, and, of course, Cairo is a 10th century Egyptian city. You have Old Man of the Sea, which is uh, a known figure in both Greek and Middle Eastern mythology. You have Bazaar of Baghdad. And Baghdad is, of course, 8th century Abbasid Caliphate, established a capital city uh, that named Baghdad. You have Library of Alexandria. And Alexandria was a 3rd century BC library in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. Alexandria still stands, uh, the library does not. Uh, there are many interesting theories on uh, how that came to be, but I think the historic community consensus currently is that the library wasn't destroyed in some cataclysmic event, it rather sort of withered away under centuries of bad leadership and governance and suddenly uh, sort of a fire ended the rest of what stood there. Sad story. And not the Wasteland or Strip Mine. All right. If you, if you say so. Nor a sinkhole. <laughs> then you have characters such as, and I'm not giving all examples here, just a few. You have Sharazad, you have Alibaba, there is Aladdin's Lamp. And all of these are, of course, examples that we as Westerners have come to know through the story collection of 1001 Nights, which is re rewritten versions of Middle Eastern folklore. So these are very old archetypes, one can say. And then my personal favorite, City in a Bottle. This card directly references the 50th uh, episode of Neil Gaiman's comic Sandman, an episode, an issue called Ramadan, uh, written in 1993. Uh, I don't know if you read Sandman, uh, if you know if you know your Sandman, but this is one of my favorite uh, Sandman issues. Uh, Actually, it uh, it tells the story about the ruler of this beautiful city. I think it's actually Baghdad. And the ruler of the city discusses things with the Sandar. And he is so afraid that his city will one day wither and go into... That his city will one day wither into uh, decay. And all the beautiful things that now are will be no more. And he makes a deal with the Sandman. That the Sandman will keep his city in a bottle in the dream realm. uh, So it will be forever flourishing. Uh, and of course, the city in the bottle effect on the card is that it removes all the Arabian Nights cards from the battlefield and puts them in this bottle. Essentially, a comic book issue written straight onto a magic card. Finally, some honorable mentions from the history of magic. Repentant Vampire from Odyssey, 2001. This references Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a 1990s television series. Then you have Rooftop Storm from Innistrad, 2011. This is from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus, written in 1818. And lastly, the most recent example that I'm going to give is Grave Bramble from Jumpstart in 2020, which references Plant vs. Zombies, a computer game by PopCap Games, released in 2009. 
So, have I made my point? Quite clearly. Yeah, and I, I really I really enjoy you know getting the the background behind these. And uh, personally, for me, like uh, a thousand and one nights is uh, you know quite uh, quite an interesting tale. And you you know just the setup, but adding the characters from it is really interesting. Uh, another like small uh, story tangent uh, from from uh, just that is uh, my wife uh, and her mother are actually both named from this book. So her mother is uh, Shahrazad, and uh, my wife's name is Sheila, which is the blackbird in the in the tale that. Uh, the storyteller uh, teller has as a companion. So I, I really I really enjoy these, and you know, like uh, when I when I first started playing, these had been out for a while, and it it felt kind of kind of odd, I must say, to see you know Baghdad on a magic card because you know this is a real reference to to a place, or you know it has a it has a meaning. To a lot of people about a specific place or a, a, a certain time so it just felt a bit immersion breaking but not like now we're so used to it and these cards are iconic that we might oversee it but it's uh, it was definitely weird for me the first time i agree strongly i first time went into my then local game store they had photocopies color photocopies as of different magic cards as wallpaper uh, in the store it was quite nice but you had these Ali from Cairo. I'm like, but Cairo is a city like that exists. This is strange. I, I agree with force of nature. That's you know, that's a trope that I can get behind because it's so generic. But Bazaar of Baghdad, I mean this you also have to remember this set was created virtually at the same time as the first Gulf War was going on, which was in where the US fought Iraqi forces in sort of the protection of Kuwait. We have to not going to go down that rabbit hole of history because that conflict is, of course, a lot more complicated. But it did really break immersion. Aladdin's lamp as well, Aladdin's ring. It was like, why are these cards here? Why aren't they called the magic ring of Shruplumbla instead? Or, you know, whatever. But as you said, I also think that this this breaking of immersion has been going on for such a long time of magic's history that I am now used to it. I think it's rather cute that you have Rooftop Storm, which obviously references Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, because it's like a small Easter egg. If you read that book or you've seen uh, you know, movies made based on that book, you will understand the reference. Uh, and I mean, I, I mentioned a lot of examples because there are sure to be a lot of things that I, when I did this exercise of finding these references, I did not pick, pick up on them because I haven't read all these books that they reference, nor I hadn't read the interview with the one guy that explained that Never Neural's disc is based on Larry Niven's not long before the end. Because also that's not by far any of Larry Niven's more famous books. So how would you know, right? What do you think, Robin? Does this immersion breaking, uh, is this an issue for you? I mean, uh, as you were talking about, I think that the sort of line between something that is too immersion breaking and that is something that is just uh, copying other like cultural uh, or folklore, uh, that kind of stuff. It's really hard because for, if you take, for example, orcs, they were quite obviously invented by J.R.R. Tolkien. And if 
if those orcs were named, I don't know, Uruk-hai or something like that, that would be more a refer- reference to, to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Maybe that would feel worse, but like it, it's still the, it's still a reference to that trilogy without making that direct reference. I don't know. I, I think it, it's it's really hard to to have a, a fantasy game without taking um, taking a lot of uh, inspiration from the real world and from other stories. And 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 sometimes like those connections are more obvious, and sometimes those connections are more vague, but they're always there. So what do you think about the more immediate uh, interest of us? Uh, is this going to be good? Is this going to be bad? Or is this going to be sort of unimportant uh, when it comes to Paper Legacy? For me personally, uh, I am not playing Magic for the lore, but of course there is a sort of air to the game or a, like a mood that you have uh, when you look at the art uh, and when you sort of uh, picturing what is really going on. Uh, like that rock band that is summoning Merit Lage that we were talking about. Some of these uh, cards that have been uh, released are are a little bit uh, harder to picture in this sort of context, in my opinion. Uh, specifically, uh, when there are like named persons from a TV series, that's that's a little bit uh, harder for me. But uh, I really don't care so much that I get upset about it, so to say. But I guess that. If I had some some agency over this, I would choose to 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 rather look back at old or like fantasy sort of uh, stories rather than modern uh, games or TV series that is uh, taking place in the modern world. Yeah, I I kind of agree. Uh, I mean, it's it's a big difference between taking uh, some inspiration, you know. Yeah, let's let's make a we're gonna make a new creature type. Let's take uh, some uh, pop like pop culture uh, reference uh, that's popular now, because uh, we think that it might uh, create some new fans, you know. And it's it's we're gonna need new uh, new creature types in the future, anyways. And that's a big difference between you know uh, borrowing fantasy creature and you know printing andrew lincoln which is rich grimes uh, on a magic card it's it's not as bad uh, well it i i think it's it's kind of strange because if you take like ali that we talked about I, i'm not sure if that's like oh this is a picture of ali and we're just gonna completely uh, copy it and make it as real as possible no it looks like someone has taken the picture of rick like of abraham and then just drawn it onto a magic card but like the art could have been anywhere it could have been fan art it could have been on the front page of uh, like a a fan forum or a webcomic so i i kind of feel like when it comes to legacy and the mechanics behind it i i have zero problems with cards because cards enter like they get played and they do one thing like that's that's not new and for me a big part of the immersion uh, has already been bro- broken recently with uh, the focus on specific planeswalkers you know the whole marvel kind of uh, uh, it feels like they've they've gotten the uh, superhero treatment when it comes to the oaths and all of that so i kind of feel like what i'm nostalgic about with magic has already been gone for a while uh, so this feels like if if this is something that wizards want to do to get new fans in 
I think it's uh, equal to when they want to uh, create a kind of uh, joint universe with the uh, famous planeswalkers, you know, going to different planes and fighting Emrakul and stuff. It's not really that different, but it's kind of like the same step away from what Magic was uh, when we grew up, which is it doesn't affect the legacy gameplay, which ultimately I care most about, like the fun behind playing legacy. Yeah, no, I agree quite a lot with what you just said, Christopher. Um, I see it as a as I mean, I'm a person who enjoys the lore of Magic Gathering, or at least parts of it, and I I care about the lore. As you've heard on this podcast, I've raged about you know what I see as horrible lore decisions. But I also think that what Magic lore-wise is doing that's problematic right now is that it is trying to be nostalgic for itself. Like you, for example, in this release of Showcase 2021, one of the other products that was going to come is the Brothers War, Ursa and Mishra. Now, finally, we're going to have the set that that shakes out this fabled or sort of, but also mysterious legend many thousand years ago war that occurred. And now Ursa is, you know, was printed as a card in, in Modern Horizons. Uh, now we're getting a set with Ursa and Mishra and everyone who is there. For me, it becomes a bit like the Star Wars prequels. Like, this is a backstory that I don't want to know more about. Like, this backstory is perfect when it's hidden in some kind of obscurity. Like, please do not tell me how Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. I'd like to have that for my own imagination. Because as soon as you portray that story explicitly, you destroy all the fantasy and mysticism around it. Because now, for example, we will get sort of the canonized version of of the Brothers' War. Because it will be printed in cards. And I don't think we need that to have an artifact set going on. Nor did we need specifically Ursa, Lord High Artificer, uh, as the name for that magic card. It would have been doing interesting things in magic anyway. Uh, and the same thing as, like, we don't need to have Nissa Ravain come back again uh, to play a different part. Like, she was great in her first iteration. She was this, like, proto-fascist elf a super interesting story arc existing in that specific lore context of that magic set at the same time as other, you know, because ma- magic sets always have these fixed characters. I mean, you have legends, for example, they were invented early in the game of Magic Gathering and they play an important part on their plane, as it were. Uh, I mean, Sorin, of course, is excellent in Innistrad. Sorin in Sendikar is just weird because then it becomes a reference to the game itself, uh, and I see that as lore-wise a larger problem than making a commander product for 40k fans to have them start playing Magic. Having said all this, it also made me think of another thing uh, about Magic play that I miss, and is that we no longer have uh, block constructed tournaments, and they were removed before the blocks were removed. Now we don't even have blocks, so you know you can't really have block constructed. <laughs> but I look a lot forward to when the Lord of the Rings set comes out. I'm gonna buy. A huge bunch of boxes of Lord of the Rings, and I'm gonna create Lord of the Rings block constructed decks. It is the OG fantasy story uh, in many respects, and playing magic within it, I think, is gonna be fantastic. Uh, one of the things that you were talking about with the War of the Brothers or whatever, with uh, Mishra and Ursa, I kind of, I kind of feel at like in a place in my life where. When someone or like a company adds lore or something to something that's kind of old, I have 
reached a point in my life where I'm at liberty to ignore that as canon because the person who's writing this is probably not the person who wrote the first original things. It's, it, it might be as authentic as someone buying the rights to an old video game franchise and then just making a prequel. It might be as true to the Resident Evil mo- <laughs> like uh, games as the movies are. Like, not at all. It's just someone who has the rights and can do whatever they want. So for me, I don't, I don't really care about like that they are doing that. If it's great, good. If it's just, you know, like we want some cool action and have nostalgia about a piece of like magic that's long gone. And it's just utter garbage, you know, like a not a cash grab, but just like you're playing on heartstrings that hasn't been there for a while. It's uh, yeah, I, I definitely I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm more at the place where I'm at liberty to just like, yeah, sure. They can call it canon, but I don't care. Like, it's, it's fine. Alright, wow, that was a ride on the hype train indeed. Now let's chill a bit with something that we are more used to, the basic land connoisseur panel. Incidentally, among one of the favorite uh, segments uh, among our listeners, uh, as I understand it. So this week we're going back to look at the islands of Mono Blue, Ursacarn, Echo archetypes. Christopher, I think you, as the most successful and uh, frequent player of these decks among the three of us should go first here. Yeah, uh, I've been playing this deck quite a bit. I I bought it and built it uh, for last summer when we were going to get started with the Discord, uh, like the Discord play a bit. So this is, for me, my breakout Discord deck, I would say. I did play it quite a bit, and it's extremely powerful. But more than that, both Urza and Karn, if we're uh, harking back to what we just talked about, are from the like uh, not from the set that I started playing, but uh, I I got my first magic cards during Ursa Saga, and that's like the Karn Silver Golem set. You know the set is called Ursa Saga. It's like a lot of references. It's that world, and it's this powerful wizard artificer that just it's it's it is the Ursa Saga set for me. When I look at this deck, I can't think of other things. Uh, it has a lot of iconic characters in it even though a lot of the cards are new it even plays you know like both bobbles of the brothers it's a very iconic set just due to the characters introduced in it so i picked an island from ursa saga and the one that i picked specifically is by donato giancola and it's the version 338 and it's just Clear skies, uh, you see some, some nice friendly clouds in the background. It's this symmetrical island, kind of, that just, I, I don't know, it's, uh, it's one of the first basic lands that I ever saw playing Magic. And for that, it has a very special place when I think about these characters. When I hear, when I hear Urza and Karn, uh, I don't think 
modern uh, planeswalker staple for seven and i don't think four mana one four that kills the opponent i think about like these basics from this set and for me i just picked i picked one of the four the one that i have my first memory of which i absolutely love so that's my pick so this basic item is interesting because it's a it's an atoll that has coniferous trees which i think is a bold statement of uh, magical independence and it looks so peaceful this is probably the most peaceful island that we've had on this uh, segment so far i have also chosen a basic land from ursa saga by donato giancola number 335 so this one is not so peaceful it's uh, perhaps the same island actually from another angle but the, the, the water is furious and there's lightning coming from the sky. And it's a quite a dark blue, almost a little bit of purplish look to it. And that's what it feels like when you're on a roller coaster against Ursa deck, in my opinion. They dump their hand on turn one and then they echo eons into a new hand and do it all over again. And you just sit there and <laughs> wonder what's going to happen. And suddenly they're up to like... 20 mana or something like that and start doing crazy stuff with Ursa. And and just as uh, Christopher were alluding to, in my opinion, some, some people call this deck Karn Echoes. And that is just blasphemy, in my opinion. It, it's Ursa deck. Ursa is the glue that holds this deck together. And Ursa is so powerful in this shell. And uh, so, of course, you need a land from Ursa's own saga set and that's why I picked this basic island yeah I really like it and the the whole uh, experience you said um, like the when it starts storming uh, when the when the deck is popping off uh, you're kind of like just sitting there hoping that like um, the ride is gonna end soon it's like a reverse roller coaster ride when they're like yeah you don't need a ticket to ride and then when you've gone one one lap, you're like, oh man, yeah, I need to get off. And they're like, yeah, but you need a ticket to get off. And if you don't have that ticket, you're going to ride again and again and again with like a new echo, a new storm, whatever, until you just pack it up. <laughs> and that's like your, uh, this, this uh, island is what your head looks like in the third, third or fourth round against the roller coaster. Yeah, I, I love that this deck sort of... I mean, it has plenty of win cons, of course, but sometimes it feels like a storm deck that doesn't have a storm finish because it, need, it doesn't need one. It will end up with you having zero cards in your hand and the opponent having a devastating board state, and that's all that uh, is necessary. You don't need to tendrils for for 20 life. Yeah, the, the setup is not turn one ponder, it's turn one chalice, and then we're going to see how the deck... Can like how the match plays out. And Victor, you seem to have gone back to the basics, the Alpha Limited. Basic of the basic limited edition Alpha. I've been talking about it so much today that I felt that I had to bring back some OG island art. This is Mark Poole, uh, the purplish yellow island image. And I've chosen this firstly because I wanted to uh, make a reference to our discussion earlier, but also because I think Ursa Lord High Artificer represents such an ancient part of magic lore that I just needed to go back to the very beginning. And this is a, sort of a deck that I just feel that 
this is the type of island I will put there. It feels so right. Uh, because even though the cards that are the engine of this deck uh, are you know, not old, <laughs> specifically, on the contrary, they're quite fresh, it feels like an old thing when I play and usually get crushed by this deck. It feels like an old thing, even though it's new. I can't really explain why, but uh, that makes me choose this island. I can, because I've been playing a little bit of uh, old school, and uh, there are Moxes being played on turn one, and then there's a Time Twister. And this deck is just doing that, but in Legacy, without those banned cards. Yeah, I I, I really like this pick. And now we're going to play the, the Memory game. Uh, so one year ago, we played some Legacy at Robin's Place outside, and I brought my Karn, Ursa, whatever you want to call it deck. What islands did I play? <laughs> uh, I haven't got a clue. Good question, though. Let's see, Robin is thinking. Yeah, I, I can't remember, but I, I don't think it would be crazy if you actually played uh, your, your saga land. I actually played this exact island that Victor had uh, put out. I played my alpha islands. And... Uh, Right now in the deck, I'm not playing. I'm not playing them right now. But at that at that day, I did play them, the alpha. So good pick, Victor. Is this your favorite art among the the old school islands? Yes, by far. I agree. It looks like the beautiful sunset where you're just waiting for good, more good stuff to happen. I really like this. It's the of the alpha ones, the most calming one. It also, it also looks so magical, and it, it for me it harkens a feeling. And again, we're gonna go like nostalgia, references, cultures. This is one of the most Final Fantasy esque islands that I can think of. I don't know why really, but it conveys this sort of peace and stillness, which are the some of the moments that you find in the Final Fantasy games. You have these moments in these otherwise very sort of monster intense big plot storylines that you sort of just the game puts you in a position where you have to sort of just stand and look at something beautiful such as this island yeah and then to just uh, you know wrap wrap up the whole when you brought in fun fancy this looks kind of like the said island from the 10th game and during sunset but in my head just due to the sunset and everything the song playing is not the original uh, Besaid Island theme. It's Wandering Flame, which is an extremely beautiful piece of music that I recommend everyone to listen to before going to bed. And that is all we have for this week. So many circles completed. A really meaty episode. Hopefully you enjoyed the one slightly different topic that we brought on the table today. And regardless, many thanks for staying with us all the way to the end. If you want to support this podcast, you can recommend us to a friend. That helps a lot. If you're into that, you can, of course, also give us maximum star reviews on any podcast machine application that you want to use. If someone wants to reach out to us, where can we be found? Robin? You can find me on Facebook and uh, on other sort of discussion platforms. My username is Jackaboo. And you can find me on Twitter at ManolifMTG. And you can find me on Twitter as well under Disco Drogo. 
that is the end of the 15th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Robinson CNN and Christopher Wikström. Our amazing music is fitted by Frönes. Check them out on Spotify. Until next time, Hadouken! <laughs>